Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. I hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 42. In this last chapter, we see Job's response to God and his generous restoration. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Here we observe that the speeches of the Lord have had their intended effect. Job is now ready to trust God implicitly. You can do all things, and you are working out purposes which shall surely come to pass, and I am not in a position to assess or critique the progress of your plans. Therefore, I regret having spoken of things far too wonderful for me. I repent in dust and ashes. Now, it's very important for us to be clear as to what precisely Job is repenting of. He is not repenting of some secret sin that he had been previously unaware of. If that were the case, then the internal logic of the book would fall apart. That was the argument of the friends. The friends said that Job was either hiding a sin or unaware of a sin that somehow explained his terrible suffering. Therefore, they said, you should repent, and and that will put you back to rights with God. Is that what is happening here? Absolutely not. Thinking that would make an absolute mash of the book. John Calvin is helpful here. He says, We see then for what it is that God rebukes Job, namely, in that he had too hastily spoken of that which was beyond his grasp. Closed quote. I agree. And I think it's so important to draw this line as finely as we can, meaning we need to understand what God is and isn't rebuking here. Because that's that's part of the function, part of the blessing of the book of Job. The, the book provides us an example of steadfastness under trial. We know that because it says that in the New Testament. In James 5, verse 11, it says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, close quote. So, the New Testament is saying we should consider the example of Job, but we should be careful in our consideration because not everything Job did and not everything Job said was, in fact, pleasing to the Lord. Specifically, based on what Job says here in his speech of repentance, it seems that God was not happy with how Job attempted to solve one of the great dilemmas of the human experience. When human beings experience or observe terrible suffering in the world, they often undergo something of an intellectual crisis. They become aware that the world isn't the way they had imagined it to be. And if they believe in God, as Job and his friends all do, then they experience a crisis of coherence that is usually framed something like this. 
if God is all-knowing, and if God is all-powerful, and if God is perfectly just, then why is there so much suffering in the world? That is a fair question in a fallen world, and Job isn't wrong for asking it. But he was wrong in the way he began to answer it. Job had begun to question whether or not God was truly and entirely just. Now, to be clear, Job never questioned God's wisdom or power. So, for example, we hear him saying in Job 9, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Okay, so good. Check and check. He believes in God's wisdom. He believes in God's power. Check and check. But then a few verses later, in chapter 9, he says, It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Then he goes on to say in verse 24, The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? Are you hearing that? Job says that God is wise and powerful, but... He comes very close to saying that he is clumsy or indifferent in his execution of justice. It looks like he treats the blameless and the wicked the same. Job says that in verse 22. It looks like he turns the eyes of the judges away from obvious wickedness. Job says that in verse 24. But then, of course, like Job often does, he he backs away from that. He says, "If, if that's not what it is, then what's going on? Well, that comes pretty close to an accusation against God's justice. Job had wondered whether he had fallen through a crack in God's clumsy judicial system. David Atkinson makes that argument. He says, Job thought he had fallen through a gap in the creator's management of the world. But now he's reassured. The creator is holding all things by the word of his power. Nothing, not even the silly ostrich or the terrible monsters are outside his gracious hand. So Job can rest secure and live with his questions being unanswered. In God, power, justice, and wisdom are all aspects of one and the same divine character. So Job can let the matter rest in faith within the mystery of God. Faith, we said, is what God gives us to help us live with uncertainties. Closed quote. That is very well and very helpfully said. Job repents here of ever having doubted the perfect, though at times inscrutable, justice of Almighty God. He's got the whole world in his hands. He sees me. He knows me. He's got this. And I should never have doubted him. That is what Job is saying here. And that is faith. Verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, 
as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. First thing we should notice here is the verdict that God offers upon the dialogue between Job and his friends. Again, like a good dad, God put Job in his place and corrected him where necessary. But then he turns and vindicates Job before his friends. Job may have said some things he shouldn't have, but on the whole, he had the right of it. His suffering was not due to any particular sin in his life. There was something else going on, and you were wrong for pressing him and judging him the way you did, God says. Tremper Longman III comments helpfully here. He says, Job serves as an example to warn against judging others on the basis of their situation in life. Friends, I want you to hear that. In fact, if you can only take away one thing and store it in your long-term memory from your study of the book of Job, this might be a good one. Let me say that again. Job serves as an example to warn against judging others on the basis of their situation in life. That was the mistake that Job's friends made. And they compounded that mistake by absolutizing the transcendence of God. In order to protect their proverbial theology, they made God so distant as to appear almost disinterested in human beings. So they didn't speak kindly to Job and they didn't speak rightly about God. And therefore, God tells them to go to Job and to ask him to intercede on their behalf. Now, obviously, that would serve to vindicate Job and to restore his social standing. But I think there's more going on here than just that. David Atkinson thinks so, too. He says, the servant stands in place of the people before God, bringing a sacrifice of atonement, consecration, and offering, and praying for God's mercy and grace. Once again, the book of Job is pointing beyond itself to the mediator between God and human beings, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as an offering for sins and now ever lives to make intercession for us. Close quote. I think that is true. And I think it's helpful for us to see that. Job functions here as a type of Christ, meaning that Job anticipates and prefigures Christ. Job is an innocent sufferer but not a completely innocent sufferer. So it isn't a perfect comparison, but it is a prophetic comparison. That's what he's saying. We are supposed to see an innocent sufferer interceding with God on behalf of sinful friends. Well, that's the gospel, my friends. That's what Jesus does. That is what Jesus is doing right now on our behalf. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7, 25. Jesus, the ultimate and entirely innocent sufferer, stands in the presence of God as the Son of Man to make intercession on behalf of his friends. This is exactly what Job hoped for and dreamed of all the way back in chapter 16. Do you remember that? Job said, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. He would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man. 
does with his neighbor. In one of the most amazing moments in the book of Job, Job is helped to see, helped to hope for, helped to believe in a friend in heaven, one like a son of man who would argue his case before God. And now in an incredible turn of events, Job himself plays that role in the high court of God, interceding as a friend for his neighbors. That is beautiful. That is grace. And that marvelously and perfectly anticipates the gospel. Thanks be to God. Verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now, it is so important that we observe the sequence here. Notice two things in particular. Notice, first of all, that God blesses Job only after he's been reconciled to his friends. God will not bless people who are holding on to petty grudges. Bitterness and unforgiveness block the blessings of God. We would be missing a major blessing in this book if we failed to observe that. Secondly, notice that Job is completely content in God before he learns about his personal and material restoration. If we miss that, we miss the whole book. Job is content in God's goodness and wisdom and justice back in verses 2 to 6. Nothing is said about his restoration until verse 10. You absolutely must see that. Tremper Longman III, for example, says, he preserves his integrity until the bitter end. And this is important. Before he has his prosperity restored, Job is not told by God that he will restore Job. Nonetheless, Job fears God. In this, Job demonstrates to all, the accuser seems long gone, that he will worship God in spite of an absence of prosperity. Indeed, he will worship God even in the midst of his suffering. Closed quote. David Atkinson also says something here that I want you to hear. He says, It is one of the many excellences of the book that Job is brought to contentment without ever knowing all the facts of his case. In view of the way in which the Satan brought up the matter, something had to be done to rescue Job from his slander. And the test would work only if Job did not know what it was for. God thrusts Job into an experience of dereliction to make it possible for Job to enter into a life of naked faith, to learn to love God for himself alone. God does not seem to give this privilege to many people, for they pay a terrible price of suffering for their discoveries. But part of the discovery is to see the suffering itself as one of God's most precious gifts. To withhold the full story from Job, even after the test was over, keeps him walking by faith, not by sight. He does not say in the end, Now I see it all. He never sees it all. He sees God. Do you see why it's important to hear those two points? If Job found contentment in God only after he was given all the answers and only after all his prosperity was restored to him, then this book wouldn't be what it is. It wouldn't be about grace. It wouldn't be about trust. It would be something else entirely. The whole point is that Job trusts God 
now through thick and thin. But of course, that doesn't mean that God has to leave Job in the thin. Thin was never the point. Poverty was never the point. Suffering isn't better than health and prosperity. But neither is it a reward for good behavior. That's too simple a view in this terribly broken and fallen world. That's the point. And, and so this is about trust and this is about grace. Francis Anderson says it so well. He writes, God does what he pleases. It would be absurd to say that he must keep Job in miserable poverty in order to safeguard the theology. These gifts at the end are gestures of grace, not rewards for virtue. Closed quote. Yes, 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 a thousand times yes. If you understand that, you understand the book. Job doesn't worship God because of the gifts. He worshiped God in the absence of the gifts. He was at peace with God before the gifts were given. So the contest is over. Job is not a mercenary. He loves and trusts the Lord, even in the storm. But that doesn't mean that the storm has to last forever. God is good, and he can do as he wishes. And apparently, and marvelously, he wishes to bless. Verse 11. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. We notice that twice as much, mentioned in verse 10, applies only to the material possessions. Job ends his life with the same number of children that he had before his horrible ordeal. Interestingly, the narrator names his daughters and not his sons. Perhaps this was just a way of indicating how special they were to him and how much comfort they brought to him later in his life. We don't know. We know that he was rich enough to provide an inheritance, not just for his sons, but also for his daughters. The point seems to be that Job has been extraordinarily blessed. His ending sounds exactly like the good endings of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. He lived a long life. He saw his children and his grandchildren to the fourth generation. And then Job died, an old man and full of days. The Lord gave, the Lord took, and then the Lord gave again. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
And thank you for listening to End of the Word. We're going to do something a little bit unusual after this particularly long and challenging series. Tomorrow, we'll release a Reflections episode, looking back over the entire 42 chapters of this book and attempting to organize systematically some of what we've learned and heard along the way. You can find that episode over at the website, www.intotheword.ca, and it will also be posted on our Facebook page, and of course, as always, you can find it on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance to shine upon you and be gracious unto you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. Amen.